Hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson. Joining me in a bit today will be Tim Phillips. Uh, joining me constantly these days are these allergies. Um, there's a tree in my backyard that uh, really aggravates it. It has these white, puffy flower blooms that uh, awaken and then quickly die. Not quickly enough for me, and it's really hard because, you know, being stuck at home, uh, although, you know, we are kind of reopening here, but being for the most part stuck at home, there's no escape. So here I am, struggling to record radio shows while uh, trying not to sneeze on the air or um, cough or sound nasally or stuffy or, you know, it's great stuff. It's good times here on Snake Mountain. So awesome. <laughs> Let's get into the show. End Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We are here every Wednesday at 3 p.m. to talk about the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies, which this week will be the Academy Award-winning nature documentary, My Octopus Teacher, which you can now stream on Netflix. Before we get to that, though, we're going to continue our retrospective of summer movie seasons from the past, and uh, I am skipping over... 1988, uh, although there were some interesting picks in 1988, it just, as a consistent season, there, there was just, like, some pretty big gaps. I mean, there was, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit that year, uh, Die Hard, and a couple other, like, good picks, but it just, like, as as a whole season, it was lacking. It was, like, malnourishing, even in the, like, popcorn department, so it just... There wasn't a lot going on, so I'm jumping ahead to 1989, which was the summer that really changed everything. You could sort of see how the blockbuster culture was, like, finally kind of metastasizing. Um, it, it was, like, if, if there's, like, sort of like a prototype of the way we conventionally think of summer movie seasons now. 1989 is kind of it. There are just so many sequels, so many tent poles. Uh, attempts to create franchises, some successes at creating franchises, but there are still some interesting deviations from the form as well that uh, are well worth highlighting. So let's get into it. Starting on May 12th, that was when Earth Girls Are Easy came out. Um, Pre-fame Jim Carrey, is like even before he was on In Living Color, uh, by far, that's kind of what the standout is. I mean, it was also the the reunion of Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis, who were in the fly together, and then they they're in this like, so they're in this like body horror thing, and then they go to this like zany madcap rom com with aliens kind of deal. Uh, interesting, kind of a cult classic now. Definitely too silly to be believed, but. Um, well, that's what happened. On that same weekend, we get See No Evil, Hear No Evil, which was the third and second-to-last teaming of Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder in the same movie. It came, like, almost a full decade after Stir Crazy, which was a big, big hit. But they were were unable to sort of capitalize on that, I guess. You know, maybe they were 
just had like two entirely different schedules and were unable to collaborate until uh, 1989 when See No Evil, Hear No Evil came out. Basically, Pryor is blind, Wilder is deaf, and they get into hijinks together. Uh, it's funny in its own way. <laughs> Probably a little too dated by a half, but that's fine. Um, speaking of kind of dated, on May 19th we get Roadhouse, uh, famous for Patrick Swayze and his mullet. The kind of epic tale of, of one man fighting against, you know, evil developer Scion, uh, trying to take over his precious bar, and, uh, <laughs> it, it's so silly when you try to explain Roadhouse in a serious, straightforward manner, but, I mean, it holds up as, like, pure camp, and just a lot of fun. On May 24th, we get Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Supposed to be, at one point, the last Indiana Jones movie. Of course, we know there was one in 2008, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. There's another one they are working on presently in London. Um, that's currently in principal photography. So it didn't turn out to be the last Indiana Jones movie ever, which is okay. Because I'm, I'm not a hater. I don't hate Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It has its tremendous deficits and faults, of course, but I don't hate it. it it's a perfectly okay Indiana Jones movie. And in a sense, Last Crusade is too, although it does have the tremendous casting of, of Sean Connery as um, Indiana Jones' father. Uh, I think Spielberg's on the record as saying, well, who else could be Indiana Jones' father but James Bond? Of course, Spielberg had, once upon a time, designs to make uh, his own James Bond movie. Famously, they won't let non-British people make James... Or, I don't know if this is still a rule, but, you know, for, for years and years and years, only British people were allowed to make James Bond movies. At least the, the formal, canical James Bond movies. And so Steven Spielberg went out and made his own kind of James Bond with Indiana Jones, culminating in The Last Crusade, which, uh, of course, people will note, is supposedly a correction for things that, that went wrong in the making of, of Temple of Doom, which a lot of people have come to appreciate as... as not wrong to begin with, and indeed were bold creative choices. Um, on May 26th, we get Pink Cadillac, which may be the last time uh, Clint Eastwood tried to do Silly. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it's notable for those reasons. Also, Bernadette Peters, a rare Bernadette Peters sort of movie appearance where she kind of gets a starring role, so that's fun, too. They're an interesting pair. On June 2nd, you get... Dead Poet Society, which is part of Robin Williams' turn to serious dramatic actor, uh, or at least playing in, in more dramatic fields. He's kind of making this pivot the year before in Good Morning Vietnam, but, but I mean, it's still very much the Robin Williams persona. Here he is acting with a capital A. Um, of course, this is a movie that launched like thousands of people who want to be like inspirational English lit teachers, you know, and get the students to stand on their desks and find their inner voice or whatever. I mean, a lot of it is kind of pompous now in retrospect, but it's understandable why this. some people would find this, this movie uh, very inspiring. I think if we were to go back in time, we may change our minds about that. Also, very early... Ethan Hawke appearance as um, one of uh, Robin Williams' students. On that same weekend, you get Vampire's Kiss, which is sort of Nick Cage building his um, big screen persona as 
strung out weirdo. Uh, it's an interesting story. It's supposed to be a comedy, I think, but it's it's kind of like a dark comedy. It's about this guy who he's kind of a wasteoid in that you know he's a businessman that's like only concerned about business. His only relationships are these cheap one night stands that he has. And then he kind of starts conning himself into thinking he's becoming a vampire, which, I mean, self-delusion, I think, is, is very self-referential to sort of what's going on right now. But um, I, think it's, I think it's safe to say this is a dark comedy, and it might have some surprisingly modern tones, given you know what we're seeing with QAnon stuff and people just believing in the worst kind of fantasy and thinking it's real. And, uh, maybe I'm reading too much into Vampire's Kiss. Anyway, on June 9th, we get Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, probably the worst Trek movie. Of course, at this time, the original cast is getting older. They are also competing within their own, um, franchise, because this, at this point, um, Star Trek The Next Generation is kind of hitting its stride. So... Um, there's obviously a friction there between the old and the new and, um, just how much, how many more stories were left to tell with this group of people. There's an interesting story in Star Trek V somewhere. I don't think William Shatner was able to find it. Of course, if you're, if you're very familiar with William Shatner's sort of like other outside creative endeavors where he's kind of like the creative lead, like Tech War, I, I defy anyone to figure out what tech war is. Anyway. Uh, on June 16th, you get Ghostbusters 2, which was kind of... I mean, I, I do, again, this is one of those things that I don't hate it, like some people do. It's a perfectly fine, okay Ghostbusters movie. But you can definitely tell everybody's arm was twisted to be there, with the possible exception of Dan, Aykro Dan Aykroyd. And part of the thing is... Because Ghostbusters 2 was made and it was somewhat successful, it sort of put the mind, put, put the idea in the minds of a lot of people, up to and including, and probably especially Dan Aykroyd, that this could be a franchise. Which is why we got Ghostbusters, the remake, a couple of years ago, why we're getting Ghostbusters Afterlife later this year. I'm very, very skeptical that this is a thing. That uh, <laughs> that can be made a reality that we're gonna have Ghostbuster franchises and Ghostbuster movies out the wazoo, but I mean you can you can partially blame Ghostbusters too for that. On June twenty third, you get Batman. The, it's a movie that changed everything. You could not escape that bat symbol that summer, and I remember. Um, I was about ten years old, so this was like prime time for me. <laughs> In terms of, like, getting into the fandom, so I remember the Batman t-shirts, going to the comic store, looking up Batman comics, standing in line for Batman. I stood in line for Batman. Uh, not opening night, but it was, like, I think it was the two, we went on cheap night. I think we went on Tuesday night for cheap ticket night. I have to, I think, because I think it was after school was over, too. We, we, I had to wait for school to be over to do that. Anyway, on that same weekend, you also get Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Good counter-programming. You know, if Batman's full, it was an easy deke to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. You'd probably be disappointed, but you would uh, come out of the movie feeling pretty good about, you know, if, as, as a runner-up choice. You didn't get to see Batman, but you got to see a fun adventure where kids get shrunk to the size of ants and are running around their backyard. 
I also feel compelled to point out that this was a big summer for Rick Moranis, because you get Ghostbusters 2, you get Hanai Shrunk the Kids, and later you get um, Parenthood, all of which uh, Rick Moranis had a at least supporting role in. Probably the last time he was a, a big pop culture phenom for, like, stuff he was actually doing as opposed to being, like, someone who, like, left acting and is kind of, you know... I don't want to say he's a recluse, because I don't think he's a recluse. I don't think he's in hiding, but, you know, he he's definitely been avoiding the spotlight with um, deep personal intensity. And for personal reasons, of course, and I won't get into that. On June 30th, you get Do the Right Thing, Spike Lee. Not his first movie, but his breakthrough movie. Surprisingly relevant, because it is about, like, racial tensions in this um, Bronx neighborhood. And, um how it all kind of manifests and results in a black man getting killed by the police. So, like, surprisingly on the nose 32 years later. You also get Great Balls of Fire that weekend, which is about Johnny Lee, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, the great uh, rock and roll piano player, although it kind of <laughs> glosses over some problematic aspects with Jerry Lee Lewis. You also get The Karate Kid Part 3, and a couple of weeks ago we talked about the release of Karate Kid Part 2, which was kind of a nice departure. Um, it wasn't like a retread of Karate Kid Part 1. Part 3, though, definitely a retread of Part 1, and uh, perhaps <laughs> perhaps Karate Kid Part 2 deviated too far for some taste, but it, it does set up... Uh... Well, Cobra Kai, I haven't watched Cobra Kai. Again, I'm not a Karate Kid person. It wasn't a big part of my pop culture upbringing, shall we say. But um, I don't think you get Cobra Kai without Karate Kid Part 3, which, better or worse, I don't know. Okay, so we're going to have to barrel roll through July and August here in the time we have left. July 5th, we have Weekend at Bernie's which is probably more famous for being, like, a pop culture reference point than it is for the actual movie itself in terms of, like, (laughs) you know, the joke about, you know, carrying a dead body, pretending it's still alive, and anyway. Uh, July 7th, you get the release of Lethal Weapon 2, which introduced diplomatic immunity to the common lexicon. Um, even a Family Guy song referenced it. Um, so... (laughs) <laughs> uh, very famous for the, the near the end when the guy holds up his passport and goes diplomatic immunity before he's uh, shot by both um, Riggs and Murtaugh. Famous also for a fake it at the end when you think uh, Riggs is is uh, killed, but he is not. And there are two subsequent Lethal Weapon movies which we may get to. Perhaps even a fifth. Uh, that is a rumor that they're working on a fifth Lethal Weapon movie for some reason. Speaking of franchises that never die, next weekend on July 14th we get License to Kill. It's the last Bond movie for John Glenn. It's the last Bond movie for Timothy Dalton. It's the last Bond movie we get until GoldenEye, which was more than six years later. The longest interval between Bond movies until... This year, I mean, it's almost the same. I, I, I imagine it's a photo finish between which is the longer hiatus, whether it's License to Kill to Goldeneye or Spectre to No Time to Die. On that same weekend, we also get When Harry Met Sally, which was um, notable for being another Rob Reiner success, uh, for launching Billy Crystal, 
uh, Meg Ryan as well to an extent. Slightly less famous for being the launching point for Nora Ephron, who went on to make a lot of really great movies as a director in her own in her own right. Um, and it's sort of like a a female, a, one of the rare female directors who w- would end up being able to sort of call her own shots, and and um, be able to direct her own projects. Uh, you know, Sleepless in Seattle, You've Got Mail, being like the monks, the biggest hits she did. On July 21st, weird pick here, but I mentioned it anyway, UHF, which was the Weird Al Yankovic movie where he's basically running a TV station. It's kind of a sketch comedy thing where he's in various different bits and things and playing different characters and referencing back to different things, but um, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of, it's it's kind of weird. I wish I had saved it from... um, from Thomas Video's Closer, because I know UHF was there because I borrowed it once. On July 28th, you get Turner and Hooch, but you also get uh, Jason Takes Manhattan, or it'd be more precise to say uh, Jason Takes Vancouver, because there's only about two minutes of actual footage in the film that was shot in New York, and you will definitely immediately be able to tell which part of the movie. On August 2nd, you get Parenthood, like I said. You get The Abyss on August 9th. On August 11th, you get Nightmare on Film Street Part 5, The Dream Child. On August 16th, you get Uncle Buck. On August 23rd, you get Casualties of War and Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And I wish I didn't have to, like, barrel roll through those because uh, I am out of time because there was still some, some stuff left to say about some of those movies. So, since we have run out of time, I'm just going to throw it to the most obvious octopus song I could find. <laughs> And then we're going to come back and talk about my octopus teacher. You're listening to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus, at Community Radio. In an octopus's gun, in the shade. And swim about the coral that lies beneath the waves. Oh, what joy for every girl and boy, knowing we're happy and we're safe. We would be so happy, you and me. No one there to tell us what to do. A lot of people say an octopus is like an alien. But the strange thing is, as you get closer to them, you realize that we're very similar in a lot of ways. You're stepping into this completely different world. Such an incredible feeling. And you feel you're on the brink of something extraordinary. But you realize that there's a line that can't be crossed. And that was a clip from My Octopus Teacher. It's the new film from Pippa Ehrlich and James Reed, and it stars Craig Foster. Well, I'm now being joined on the line 
by none other than Tim Phillips. Tim, how are you today? Doing well. Enjoying the June weather, the heat, <laughs> loving the heat. Yeah, looking forward to actually being outside a little bit more, hopefully, in a bit too. How are you doing, Adam? Uh, I'm not enjoying the heat. I don't care for the heat. <laughs> um, I don't care for the outdoors, so I'm going to stay where I am. Uh, no, it's good. All things considered, things are good. Um, things are not octopus good, but they are still good. Uh, which is my way of introducing our film, which is My Octopus Teacher, the Academy Award winner for Best Feature Documentary from this past uh, year's Oscars that were awarded just a couple of months ago. And Tim, you wanted to queue up your Netflix to check out My Octopus Teacher. So what about um, My Octopus Teacher uh, spoke to you? Yeah, Adam, uh, well, it's definitely it, it winning the best documentary at the Oscars caught my eye. And then also like I'd heard a brief description about how it's this, this guy who's diving and learning more about an octopus. And uh, it was described as he's becomes friend with friends with an octopus. And I thought that's an interesting concept eh, for, uh, for a documentary for someone to get that close. And there've been some other documentaries like that too, but this just the obsessiveness of, uh, you know, getting that close to what is described in the film as an antisocial creature and becoming friends with an octopus, you know, I thought, yeah, this would be something really interesting to watch. Probably have some really, really cool uh, nature uh, cinematography and then also learning about this guy's story and uh, learning more about the octopus and uh, what it goes through. And I wasn't disappointed, especially from the octopus perspective, just learning uh, learning more about sort of a year in the life of an octopus, which is really interesting. Um, yeah, and the fact that it's so focused on on one one animal, right? Um, and yeah, just very interested by that. And you know, there's other documentaries. Maybe you look, maybe seem more deserving or about like political uh topics or uh stuff that's more pressing in today's news but i think something that's always important is our relationship with nature and i think this movie does a great job in showing that and how we're truly connected to nature Um, we can feel disconnected but it's important to know that there's this whole life this whole universe below below the water, right? We're often thinking of going to space and the outer reaches, but right here on earth, there's just this incredible ecosystem down in the water, in the oceans. So Mm -hmm. I was looking forward to seeing that. And I think uh, I saw quite a bit and I was really happy (laughs) to watch, really happy to watch my octopus teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Space octopus is something very different and usually pretty bad. Um, Ask H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I I, think when it comes to like the Academy Award committee that chooses best documentary, they're always looking for something life-affirming, something pleasant, something the whole family can dig into. Not something like, like, like the Jeremy Scahill movie Dirty Wars, which is about just like <laughs> how, how war has been like commodified and, and uh, you know, 
done surreptitiously and everything's a, a state secret now. I mean, that's they they did get I, I love I love that movie that Doc Dirty Wars, but and they did give it an Academy Award nomination. But I was like, there's no way this is going to win. And this was from several years ago. But yeah, my octopus teacher very much hits that Academy sweet spot um, because it is beautiful. Like the underwater cinematography is great, but also like the above the water cinematography, like this area, this like kind of hidden area on the West coast of South Africa. Um, it's, it's very, very beautiful. Um, un, like untouched wilderness above and below. So it, it's, it's kind of very, um, you're seeing something that feels kind of very primordial except for this like one guy that's swimming around <laughs> but uh yeah it, it it's um there you get so into it too and it's like 85 minutes too so it, it goes by in a breeze like there's no because craig foster is not a a marine biologist or or a scientist or anything like that there's no getting into any you know, an analysis. So you can just sort of like enjoy the octopus as um, just like this unique find in nature and like how it crunches itself into like any crevasse and how it, you know, uses seashells as shields against sharks when they come around. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it, it's, it's a very, now I, I, I do have my issues, which I will get into shortly, but just this remain positive at this brief, uh, beginning portion of the review it is very light it is um i mean not all of it is light but it you know it is very kind of relaxed and focused just on the wonders of nature instead of like being you know kind of i think in introducing any level of scientific analysis sort of brings in a level of cynicism that we got to pull apart nature and explain it and 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 create tears and give things latin names and this isn't that movie this is just like hey i found this cool place hey i found this cool octopus hey me and the octopus became friends and i became <laughs> like supernaturally invested in her existence <laughs> yeah. and it taught me yeah. some stuff about life and that's great all that is great it is light it is breezy it is beautiful um and as i said i do have some slight issues but i mean just like as as a viewing experience, it is um, very very, uh, you know, there's something very relaxing about it. There's something very, um, it just it's it's almost hypnotic the way it draws you in and and you sort of become invested in everything as well. It does, yeah. Like I think there's a like you're saying, it's not. We're not hearing from a scientist. We're hearing from uh, from this filmmaker who just really he. Uh, he really loved diving as a child and he was getting back to that and going in 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 that sort of remote area in South Africa to to dive with and and he becomes invested like you said with the octopus and i think it was interesting that it isn't from a scientific perspective so even though it's totally biased like we're seeing everything from the octopus perspective basically and and uh, Craig Foster's perspective as someone who's totally invested in this octopus, I think that does help immerse the uh, the viewer in the action. So, like, there's this great scene where the octopus is being hunted by uh, a shark, 
and um, mm-hmm. then the octopus turns the tables on the shark and <laughs> on the back of the shark, and the shark doesn't know what to do um, uh, because its usual way of hunting, its usual way of sn- smelling out uh, uh, food it, it isn't there for it anymore. Now it's, its prey is on its back, and it's all confused. And it's like almost like watching a car chase in a, in a different movie, right? It, <laughs> and it's like you're cheering, you know, in a, when you watch a car chase in a movie, you're cheering for, you know, one side or the other usually. In this case, you're cheering for the octopus. So I, it's, it, it becomes really rousing entertainment at that point, not some sort of scientific thing that you'll see on the Nature Channel. It'll be like, okay, here's the predator hunting the prey, and this is what happens in the food chain in the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the fact that, yeah, Craig Foster, he might not even have had his facts completely right. I don't know. I didn't really fact check what he was saying about <laughs> an octopus. But the fact that, you know, he got that close and was able to um, sh- show us the life, the short lifespan of this octopus and went there every day for over a year to get that footage. It, it really, like you said, invests you in that. And I think it's, it's incredible that you can like let yourself go. And nowadays, you know, we're so cynical about so many different things. The fact that you can get lost in something like that, where it's, you know, Mm. from the outside objective perspective, it's like, okay, this is kind of a, weird guy who likes <laughs> diving in and he's really obsessed with this octopus and uh is it really really his friend or you know like you, you could probably be really objective about it but i i think uh the fact that you the way it's shot and and the whole manner of it you do get immersed in it you know um so that you know like science in a lot of ways like there's a lot of like cat owners and there's a lot of science out about cats not you know <laughs> actually not really caring they don't really give a crap about their owners or anything right but people still still love watching them and and you know spending time with them so it's it's interesting that this you know octopus became you know you know his pet or maybe even more so his friend it's very very interesting in the fact that we're we're there to get that view underwater like you're saying with the great cinematography i thought mm-hmm. i thought that was that was exceptional actually i think that gets into one of my my pet peeves with the film which is like craig foster's like insistence that the octopus was like teaching him and and he was learning all these profound life lessons which were actually like pretty pretty straightforward you know it's like take take time to you know enjoy life relax it's like yeah tell me something i don't know craig foster but (laughs) you know it's 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 the story's kind of from like this human perspective where it's like nature is kind of there to service us and teach us lessons about the natural order instead of just like being this thing because you know it, it just it strikes me again this this alcove uh on the coast of Africa, it's like it, it feels like he's kind of like the only person who's who's there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there's like maybe a town nearby or something, but I mean, just like this specific area is so like devoid of human presence. Like you don't even really see like anything, any boats sailing nearby, and that's you know perhaps because it's like the 
still technically the Atlantic Ocean, so there's a particularly temperamental ocean, but it, it, it is it is this area that you know is like kind of humanless, and in comes this human, and it's like, okay, nature, teach me about you, <laughs> and it's like. Like the octopus doesn't care. Like the the shark doesn't care. The crabs don't care. You know, you're and, and he, he does talk at one point about how he sometimes feels like an interloper. Um and it's like, yeah, because you are an interloper. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I just feel like there's there's a I hate to use the phrase, but it feels like there's a lot of human supremacy in this. It's like this is meaningless if I wasn't here to observe all this, which is kind of bollocks because there are all sorts of places on the planet where humans aren't looking and you know if a tree falls in a woods it does still make a sound even if a human isn't around to hear it i guess is the the gist i was kind of feeling watching craig foster renumerate (laughs) yeah like he he could be a he could be annoying when he was yeah he's sort of like pontificating and stuff but i i think good on him for getting under the water using you know his film equipment to capture it Mm. You know, because it gives us that that look at something we don't usually see, and stuff like stuff like that can be used for good as well, right? You think of all the sure. projects for the ocean to clean up, like I think like plastic in the ocean. I didn't see any much plastic there, if any, in the, this film, but like plastic in the ocean and just show that there's this whole life and universe down there, right? that we don't see right it's rare to see something like that so i'm i'm glad he did that and another thing i really like that he did is that he was so specific in the fact that mm-hmm. he just was focused on the octopus and he's focused going back to the same spot day after day and i thought you know a lot of his points were pretty basic but i thought his i liked his one point where people are like why are you going back every day to the same spot why don't you go look at different areas and he's like you notice the subtle differences when you go back to the same spot consistently you can start to tell more about what's going on mm. and there might be scientists out there who think is some of his uh observations maybe are bollocks or you know but i think they do like based on what the footage shows it does show you know just the wildliness of the octopus and how, you know, against all odds, it survives, even though it's, you know, under attack so often. And it, it's, mm. you know, there's these predators that are there that should be, it should, every day of its life, it should be, like, in danger. And he does, does mention about, like, the fragility of life. And, you know, you can say that's maybe a little bit pompous. But I think from his perspective, at least, it's good to see something that's personal too Mm. so from his perspective you know he was stressed out at his job and you know you could you could judge that and say well he's a filmmaker he's saying he's spending too much time in the editing suite but you know (laughs) it's not like works in a coal mine or anything like that right but but you know that's his perspective at least and and he's trying to be better as a person and just trying to learn more and you know so I, i i i give him his due for that i think the true star of the the film is the octopus and uh, mm. everything that's going on under there. It should be the star. Um, and, and sometimes, yeah, I was, I w- wasn't, I wasn't happy with some of the things, you know, where it's going back to him and making it about him, but 
I don't know. I would prefer that sort of personal touch than, you know, so many nature documentaries you've seen over the years or National Geographic. It's like, you know, with that third person voiceover, okay, here's the octopus in its natural <laughs> habitat. You know, at least at least it, it adds some flavor and some color to it. The fact that he's so personally invested, he's really biased, mm. you know, he's probably a bit pompous. <laughs> But he's also, I think it is truly personal to him. It's not like he's putting on an act or anything. It's something that did did touch his life. And, mm-hmm. he, and he was devoted to, because apparently this took over 10 years to make this documentary. So that's a lot of dedication, right? So Well, for sure. I mean... I, no, I'm not saying the lessons aren't worth learning. I just like the lessons are pedantic. But believing that aside, um, I mean, yeah, it, it, it is interesting how he's able to manage and how the filmmakers, uh, Pippa Enric and, and James Reed, uh, are able to balance like being personally invested in the, I guess, sort of almost the first-person perspective of the octopus, but at the same time are still able to, like, stand off. And, you know, if bad stuff happens to the octopus, that's nature. Um, That's part of the story, too. Um, They're still kind of able to let that happen. And they're able to turn that into, like, incredible drama, which is something nature documentaries are very want to do they, they, they want to be like very matter of fact like this is nature it is brutal but the filmmakers do something interesting like that scene you're talking about where the shark was hunting the octopus they turn it like they basically turn it into like a horror movie where like <laughs> this shark and I, I did look up what kind of shark it was because it was kind of weird looking and I, I don't think i'd ever seen a shark like that before it's called a pajama shark mm-hmm. or a striped cat shark um and from what I gather in like two minutes of reading I did on Wikipedia, it is um, it's kind of unusual for it to like come out like this and like actually hunt stuff. It's like it it sticks to the bottom of the ocean floor or inside like a cave or a crevasse or something and waits for something to swim by and then snatches it. So it's it's kind of weird that it comes out into the into the kelp forest and is like actively hunting the octopus. I guess it just had like a beef, like a, you're trying to get away octopus. <laughs> but, uh, so I guess sharks can be jerks too, but um, yeah, it, it's shot like in this very horror movie style. The octopus is trying to get away and it's like doing everything it can to evade detection, but the shark keeps coming. And of course, cause it's a pajama shark every time your mind does a trick. It's, you know, intellectually, you're probably thinking, like, there's no way it's the same pajama shark coming back again and again and again. But in your mind, um, and the way the narrative is is sort of working, um, you you kind of inadvertently turn into, like, this octopus hammy the hamster, where it's the same shark <laughs> coming back, trying to get the octopus again and again and again. And, uh, yeah, just, like, the way it's edited, like, a lot of quick cuts, the, the soundtrack is, you know, working to accelerate the adrenaline and investing you in the scene like is the octopus going to get away is it not going to get away how is it going to get away oh no it ate it it ate one of the tentacles what's what now it's there's something there's a lot of artistry to that that i really really appreciated i guess 
probably a little bit of being a horror movie buff, but you know, it just, you, it's just another way. I mean, Craig Foster, his perspective and his insights, whatever, but the film is also able to, without Foster, is able to invest you in the story of the octopus and, and using like very solid sort of right, like run of the mill filmmaking techniques to make that happen. And that's one of the things I, I really glommed onto in those sequences. It's like, this is a horror movie. Like this shark is trying to get that octopus um, because it's, <laughs> it's a bad shark and this <laughs> octopus is good. And I and, and then, you know, one scene later, it, it does the reversal with the octopus like hunting crab and lobster. Yeah. And and it's kind of like, like like this upbeat soundtrack and it's like, ooh, let's watch it hunt. Like watch yeah. watch the pinwheels and the octopus turn as it tries to figure out how to crab how to how to grab this lobster. And yeah. it's it's so weird <laughs> seeing those two scenes back to back. It's like, okay, shark trying to tr- trying to eat octopus bad. Octopus yeah. trying to eat crab. That's just life. So it, it's yeah, it's, it definitely takes sides. It's pro octopus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> little did little did we know there was a documentary filmmaker doing my crab teacher at the same time. So that'll <laughs> that'll come out later. <laughs> yeah, because like yeah, the crabs under the same pressure the octopus is from the shark, but it's, oh, go eat that crab. Yeah. I got to tell you, that would be sick if next year we had, like, my crab teacher and it's, like, some like some other guy, some other South African filmmaker nearby is, like, that octopus is trying to get my crab friend. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And, like, you're saying, yeah, the music and everything, and uh, you're comparing to a horror movie, and I think, it, yeah, probably going for that. And I, I compare it almost to, like, a car chase, too, in a way. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, and when the octopus comes up to the surface that's really cool too it's just wow it just it's so desperate to get away from the shark it comes up on the land um mm-hmm. and that's pretty wild and then uh then then it has to come back into the water but it's just just shows the desperation like just yeah the fragility of life right and just how... Well, it also shows the adaptability of the octopus that, you know, it can be on land for brief periods of time, which is not something every sea creature can do. Certainly not something a fish can do. I mean, crabs and lobsters to an extent can as well. But, you know, every, you know, it just goes to the uniqueness of the octopus as well. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I think my crab teacher and my lobster teacher, they've got <laughs> a trilogy here. Yeah. And but... then they, and then there's the one where, um, in the third chapter where Craig Foster and the, and whatever the name of the filmmaker that makes my crab teacher, like they have, they fight. And, (laughs) and and that one's called my director teacher. And it's, (laughs) that that we're we're getting into another level of meta-ness. It's, it's, uh, that would be really, that would, that would really be something. Yeah, for sure. For sure. (laughs) Um, yeah, I would I'd say yeah, Craig Foster he's an unusual dude. Mm-hmm. And when he starts crying near the end, I don't know. I was it's I had a weird reaction to him crying about the octopus. I was like almost like half like I was I was kind of like feeling it. I was kind of like okay, this is sad mm-hmm. so I'm half sad but also sort of half yeah, it's an octopus too, right? <laughs> so it's kind of like but you know, he's so invested in it, right? Um that he's just 
you know, he, it's just like a part of his family, which is very, very interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the Charlotte's Web part of the movie, right? It's like you, you kind of know that. I think there's a line somewhere around the, I guess, uh, around the hour mark where he's, you know, kind of in the groove and he's constantly going back. And this is after like the first time the, the octopus escaped the shark and, he, and he's just like, and for a while it was like everything was perfect. And you just like, oh no, things are about to get, not get perfect. And, and understandable too. I mean, the, the, the octopus had a good, probably relative to octopus, octopi long life but i mean it is also the nature of nature that you know things can can end rather quickly whether that is you know you're caught by a predator or you know there's an oil spill that kills all the marine life in the area or there's you know of some other natural disaster you know it's it's the it's the nature of nature it's nothing nothing lasts forever and um just as you know, you know what kind of what's coming at the end of Charlotte's Web that you know she that Charlotte dies. Spoiler alert for Charlotte's Web. Oh but man, that, <laughs> I was just gonna pick that up this weekend. <laughs> but you know that Charlotte dies, and yeah. because you know all spiders, you know die uh, as winter arrives. So it or many do, but uh, it, you know it just. I also had I also have a feeling that you know Bambi's kind of a strong allegory for this too. It's like there's. It's it's nature, but na- nature being beautiful is also can be quite sad, especially if you get attached. And um, so you know, it's it, it's following in a lot of really basic uh, examples of like these really great movies that are fictional and about talking animals, sure, but you know, are also very good at realizing the the brutality of nature to an extent too. It's, it's just that this is real life and. In in Craig Foster's head, the the octopus was his best friend. I'm not sure what the octopus felt, but I mean, there's there's a scene near the end where he he kind of remembers like the last time they had physical contact before she goes off and mates and um, ultimately you know dies in the process of bringing little octopi into the world. But you know that's that that's like kind of one point in the film. I was I was like feeling like. You know, Craig, are you are you screwing with us right now? Like <laughs> <laughs> last time we had physical contact, yeah, before it's... it cheated on me with it, that octopus, <laughs> <laughs> or before it like went off to die. It was like oh, it was so profound. It's like okay, come on, but uh, yeah, it, it's it, it worked, but it sort of didn't work anyway. That's why I'm trying to get at. Yeah, I think. Uh... I think it, it worked for me probably more than you and mm. I sort of immersed myself in it and, and enjoyed it. Like I can see, I can see from like a, with a critical eye and mm. being objective to him. Like even afterwards, I was like, does he, how much does he really know? Like he's not a Marine biologist, right? So how much <laughs> does he really know about what he's saying? He's, he's probably, looked on Wikipedia or different websites, right, to yeah, get his yeah. knowledge. Um, but, yeah, I just think he just, it's just, it's very interesting, and it, it's personal to him, which I think is cool. And, you know, he brings his son out at the end, to, to or near the end, starts diving with him. And, yeah, you know, it's, 
it's a bit cliched, but it's, 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 you know, it's, it's something that's true to him, which I think does, does invest the viewer in it. And, and you do, do learn so much about, you know, what, what's going on underwater with, with the octopus. And I think, yeah, it's, it's life affirming and it's life affirming in the sense of, you know, life is short too. Right. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, make the most of it and just thinking of these other species who live such short lives relative to us right like that might have been a long life for an octopus at a little over a year but maybe uh, it's uh yeah i think and and i think just yeah and the cinematography is excellent underwater i think it it just it it uh it it drew me in for sure would Mm. i vote for it as best documentary <laughs> maybe not if i watch all the contenders but you know it's uh it's interesting it's interesting to watch um it's nowhere near as good but there's a like one of my favorite documentaries is uh man on wire mm-hmm. about uh the philip Petit who was walking on a tightrope between the twin towers in the 70s and he was just obsessed with doing this it was his focus he just wanted to walk on this tightrope um, from tower to tower and it's like this this guy too it's uh, his pursuit he's 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 obsessed with learning more about the kelp forest and uh and and this octopus and i think it's good and i like that specificity about the whole thing the fact that he's getting that you know that granular that it's about just this octopus and i think mm-hmm. i think it's really interesting really uh, you, you do learn you learn a fair bit and you learn more about just how much we don't know, right? Mm-hmm. How much we don't know about what's going on in the oceans and underwater. And, you know, Jacques Cousteau used to be the big underwater uh, filmmaker <laughs> in the 70s, 80s. And you don't, there's maybe a bit of a void now. So seeing more of these documentaries, it just, just sort of lifts your spirits about, you know, what, how much life there is on earth and how much, we don't know right and i think that's um your your point about jacques Cousteau, i think is well taken that there is sort of a void in that now um there is kind of no kind of voice for the the protection and serenity and documentation i mean at least not public i mean there, there are definitely scientists and things in this area but there's like no kind of science communicator who's tying back health of the oceans and health of oceanic species to health of the planet and health of the human race. And so, I mean, in, in that regard, I, I think I salute Craig Foster's efforts. Although again, at the end where he's like, this experience brought me so much closer to my son. I was like, dude, you've, you're, this is the first time you're, you brought your son in. Like, I haven't seen my son in a year. I've been spending time with the octopus. Like I, I didn't even know you had a son. <laughs> it, just, it just, it's, it struck me as a little bizarre, but, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think overall, like these are kind of my things. I'm, I'm bringing my, my critiques or what I'm bringing into it. I, I think the movie is, is very, very. Um, beautiful it, it's very engaging um 
do I think Craig Foster is a bit of an ass? Yes, but I, I think his heart's in the right place. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just it's like a really solid, crowd-pleasing documentary that the Academy Award was obviously always going to give the Academy Award to because, you know, I mean, I'm just looking at a, a list of shortlisted uh, documentaries for best um, documentary features. So these were like docs that made the like made the shortlist but weren't eventually nominated and it's like a lot of these are like some of my favorite documentaries like blackfish and the crash reel and stories we tell and um what else have we got here uh apollo 11 which was like all like unused footage from the apollo 11 mission three identical strangers uh an inconvenient sequel (laughs) (laughs) uh i mean that maybe wasn't the best one uh but going clear the hunting ground it's just like a pussy riot a punk prayer you know all of these super awesome (laughs) documentaries that never make the cut because when the academy sits down to watch documentary they want uh they want to be entertained so i mean mission accomplished and um Kudos to the the filmmakers of the Octopus Teacher for their award, um, deserved. But um, the point I will I will remain, uh, you know, a bitter cynic to the end. The point of documentary is to depress me about that the world is like a a, a bitter and <laughs> a terrible place. It's a giant mouse trap in which we're all trapped. And I did not get that message from my <laughs> octopus teacher. <laughs> that's great adam wow yeah i need more of that during the pandemic yeah that's what i need right (laughs) let's go yeah there are actually a couple documentaries i was looking at on netflix that i haven't watched yet just because like during the pandemic i was just like i don't want to i don't want to go that dark right now You know, so I would also say that for a Netflix documentary, this was refreshingly free of true crime, which I appreciated. Yeah, except for those wily pajama sharks. That's right. They're racket. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, They're the real enemy. Anyway, Tim, yeah. if people want to uh, talk about their favorite animals or favorite sea life experiences, where can they find you on the internet? Yeah, I hope that they will do that. And I've I've learned here that I think I have the. Uh, the taste when it comes to documentaries of about an 80-year-old, because that's the academy, right? So that's I would right. fit right in with them, actually. I could change the age bracket, but not the perspective. But no. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, if you want to reach me, uh, Flash in the Deadpan on social media. Uh, yeah, reach out. Tell me. Send unusual pictures of sea, sea life, and I'll, I'll take a look. <laughs> And that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. And if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on our website at endcreditsradioshow.com. You can download it from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday at Podbean, or you can get it through your favorite podcast app at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And while you're on Spotify, you can also get the playlist for much of the music that you hear on the End Credits Show. Just open up your Spotify app and search for End Credits on CFRU. You can find us on social media, on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show, and on Twitter at End Credits Radio. I will be back here on CFRU Thursday at 5 p.m. for News and Politics on Open Sources Guelph with Scotty Hertz. 
But in the meantime, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, or you can go to guelphpolitico.ca for my news and politics site. Stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus, and Community Radio. We'll be back next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for another great edition of End Credits, and we will see you then.